0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, the book of Matthew chapters 9 and 10. We are going to conclude Matthew chapter 9 today. We're going to get into Matthew chapter 10. And what we've been reading in chapter 9 has all been occurring around the the shores of the Sea of Galilee, largely in Yeshua's new hometown, Capernaum, which itself was a commercial fishing village. Now, when he first moved out of Nazareth and into Capernaum, we don't know, because there's a fairly large hole in the Gospels about his life from the time he was 12 or 13 until he was about 30. Up until verse 35 of chapter 9 of Matthew, we have been hearing about specific instances of miracle healings, cleansing from uncleanness, uh, exorcisms of demons from from possessed persons, and then from verse 35 until the end of the chapter, Yeshua has decided to venture out beyond His village, nearly certainly traveling around the the wider region of the Galilee for the purpose of teaching and speaking in synagogues where he proclaimed the good news. Now, to be clear, as of this point, there's nothing in existence that we could even remotely call a church. There are also no such things yet as Messianic synagogues. But we can read about them in Paul's epistles because that came at a later date. Now I want to reread just a few verses that conclude Matthew chapter 9. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read just verses 35 to the end. We'll be on page 1, 2, 3, 4, 1234. Yeshua went about all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the Good News of the Kingdom, healing every kind of disease and weakness, and when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harried and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His Talmudim, His disciples, The harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray." that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in His harvest. Now, although I covered it last time, I just want to reiterate what this Good News was that Jesus was teaching and instructing about. See, when a Christian hears the term Good News, one thought instantly comes to mind, Salvation in Jesus. The Church for centuries has made the Good News one and the same as the message of salvation in Christ. That's not wrong, but it is also not what this Good News of Matthew chapter 9 is speaking about. Rather, it is the Good News of the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven on Earth. Now, of course, in hindsight, we know that Yeshua's Messiah will be the Ruler Of the kingdom of heaven on earth, so certainly he is part and parcel of God's kingdom. But that idea in no way has yet been taught to the Jewish people, apparently not even to Christ's closest inner circle of disciples. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that Yeshua has flatly avoided revealing his divine self and his full mission, thus far seemingly satisfied with being viewed as as but an extraordinary tzaddik, a holy man. Now, while some amount of speculation is called for, I, I feel fairly confident in the answer to that question. Being a teacher of God's Word for a long time, I have personally witnessed the process. A person goes through as they, as you, hear God's word in a more unmuffled, <laughs> unspun form than with context at it. And the thing that instantly becomes apparent is that we all come from different religious backgrounds, therefore believing different things, many of them unspoken. We have all been taught different things about the Bible that inevitably have come from various pastors, each who is usually beholden to one denomination or another and therefore wed to particular traditions and and doctrines, and I am afraid much of it is considerably enough off course such that some amount of course correction is in order before biblical truth can break through that hardened soil. See, Just like in elementary school, the basic fundamentals of subjects must be taught first, if ever we are to understand the whole of the matter. We have to know how to add and subtract before we can multiply and do long division. Each grade representing another step towards deeper understanding of these subjects has to occur in a logical order such that just like building a house one always begins with ground preparation then a foundation then the skeletal form of the first floor then the second story if one's going to be added then a roof's put over it the skeleton's covered over from the outside later the inside on and on and on Then we have a completed house. Now you try to do those steps in a different order or skip one, the entire structure becomes frail and faulty. Yeshua well knew that the Jewish people He addressed were in no way properly prepared, educated in God's Word, to hear and to process that stunning reality that He is the Messiah, He's divine, He would offer Himself up on a cross for forgiveness of sins, and that He would one day become the ruler on earth of God's Kingdom. Even though the Jewish people, for the most part, believed that they were living in the end times, It was almost entirely because of the Roman occupation that they felt was so oppressive and and, and unbearable. The synagogue Torah teachers were mostly teaching traditions, man-made doctrines handed down to them that too often misinterpreted or misused or obscured the actual Biblical truth. Social justice was at the forefront of their sermons because of the detested Roman occupation which constantly intruded into their lives. In whatever era, whenever we try to reshape the Biblical truth around a problem that we are encountering, too often it is spun and molded to make it fit more to our current way of thinking and to our personal hopes for certain outcomes, than it is to the discovery of and submission to God's will. Until Yeshua could spend the time to reteach some of the basic fundamentals of their Hebrew faith as it appeared in the Torah and could reestablish. the Jewish people OUGHT to be putting their hope in, they would not be able to hear and accept the bottom line. Yeshua of Nazareth was their Messiah and their King, and that delivering them from the grip of Rome was not what He came to do. The proof of what I'm telling you lies in the fact that so relatively few of the Jewish people accepted him for who he actually was. Instead, they chose to cling to the traditions of their elders, to what their synagogue leaders had taught them for scores of years, and to keep fighting for social justice within their their own ways sometimes against the Roman system. This kind of human-centered agenda enabled them to stay within the comfort zones of what they aimed for, but at the same time it trapped them in a spiritual fog, unable to see the truth. Yeshua was still to this point In our Matthew study, gaining their attention in order to repair a faulty foundation. Well, verse 36 explains that he went about his Good News Holy Land tour and he became pretty sad at what he witnessed. To Him the people were like lost sheep, sheep that had no shepherd, people that had no leader. And by leader this is not to say a civic government leader, rather a spiritual leader. Yeshua simply didn't concern Himself with civic government, except to say that whatever one exists over us, the Father has allowed it, or it wouldn't be there. Therefore, we are not to rebel against its many rules and regulations, but to do all that we can to live live peaceably within it. Obviously, this is the divine viewpoint because hundreds of Pharisees and scribes would have vehemently disagreed. They thought themselves as good shepherds of the people. But it also makes the point That just because a religious governing structure is established, that doesn't make it a good one. And it also doesn't mean that how those leaders lead the flock and what they teach the flock is truthful or helpful. I mean, what can look so good on the surface can be potentially catastrophic under that thin veneer yeshua is meaning to unequivocally point out a general failure of leadership thus the last statement christ makes to end chapter 9 is that the harvest is rich meaning abundant but the workers to take in the harvest are few now but instead of crumbling in despair over it Or allowing his disciples to do so, he orders his disciples to pray for more workers. Make no mistake, in Jesus' eyes, what he was witnessing among the lost sheep of Israel wasn't a problem, it was a crisis. So here he is teaching that when God's worshipers are in a crisis, the answer is to turn in faith towards God. Now, biblically, The harvest is regularly used as a metaphor that is more often than not associated to the end times. But notice something that is easily overlooked. Christ says to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? Most of the Church would instinctively say, Jesus. Not true. Yeshua is not instructing his disciples to pray to him. Any more than when in Matthew chapter 6, he taught them what we today call the Lord's Prayer. In every case of prayer, in every gospel account, Christ says all prayer is to be directed to the Father. All prayer. Father is the Lord of the harvest. But what exactly does the harvest represent? First and foremost it points to the end of a cycle, in our case the end of an age. Harvesting is in one sense the final step of the agricultural cycle, but in reality it is the next to the last. Revelation 14 verses 14 through 16 then I looked and there before me was a was a, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand another angel came out of the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud start using your sickle to reap because the time to reap is has come, the earth's harvest is ripe. The one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, the earth was harvested. The final step is what happens AFTER the harvest is brought in. The winnowing of what has been harvested. From the first century perspective, In a typical harvest, the good and the bad, in other words, the weeds, were taken and afterwards they had to be separated out. So we must be careful not to read a Western Christian view in Yeshua's words that means harvesting only Christians. All humans will be harvested. Only at the winnowing process will the wheat kernels, the believers, be separated from the chaff, the non believers, each to vastly different eternal destinies. Another metaphor Yeshua will use later for this process is separating the sheep from the goats. So when Christ was speaking to his disciples, Was He speaking to them about a future event that would come thousands of years later, only they didn't realize it? Would that have been how His disciples would have understood it? Not at all. In the Peshat sense, Yeshua was speaking about the here and now for for Him and for His disciples. After all, the Kingdom had already arrived. Now remember, the era of Yeshua was the first of two latter days scenarios the Bible speaks of. However, the Jewish people were only aware of the first one. So His disciples would have understood this is an end times message from Him to them. The end times they felt was imminent. This was the end times that Yeshua's disciples, and later apostles like Paul, were ready to give their lives for to preach. For them it was so imminent they thought they'd personally endure it if they weren't already enduring it. Indeed Christ wanted them to go and make more disciples and to spread the good news of the arrival of the Kingdom of God on earth. This exact instruction, by the way begins Matthew chapter 10. But prior to Christ's resurrection, this message was to be spread only to the Jewish people. Thus it was in the Peshat context that His disciples understood Him. For them the rich harvest their Master spoke of was of Jews and there needed to be more Jewish workers, more Jewish disciples of Christ to proclaim the arrival of the Kingdom to the Jewish people. But in the Remez sense, we see the hint of something deeper. From the vantage point of history and and the several books of the New Testament, we now understand that Yeshua was also speaking of a second latter days. He was also speaking of the true and final end of the age, when He returns, He sets up His Father's Kingdom to its fullest on earth, and then even at the end of that thousand year reign, when the final judgment comes. It is when the full and final harvest occurs, a harvest not just of Jewish people, but of all the earth's inhabitants, not only the living but also of those who had ever lived. Revelation 20, 11-13 through 13. Next I saw a great white throne and the One sitting on it. Earth and Heaven fled from His presence, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, the Book of Life and the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done the sea gave up the dead in it and death and sheol gave up the dead in them and they were judged each according to what he had done let's move on to Matthew chapter 10 for today we're just going to read the opening verses so open your bibles back up now we're going to start Matthew 10 going to start again on page 1234 Give you a second to get there. We're just going to read the first 10 verses. Yeshua called his 12 Talmudim, his disciples, and gave them authority to drive out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and weakness. These are the names of the 12 emissaries. First, Shimon called Kepha and his brother, his and Andrew his brother, Yaakov ben Savdai and Yochanan his brother, Philip and Bar Talmai, Toma and Mattiaw the tax collector, Yaakov Bar halfai and Tadai, Shimon the zealot, and Yuda, that's Judas, from Creote, who betrayed him. These twelve Yeshua sent out with the following instructions. <laughs> do not go into the territory of the goyim of the gentiles do not enter any town in shomron samaria but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of israel as you go proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near heal the sick raise the dead cleanse those afflicted with serot expel demons You have received without paying, so give without asking payment. Don't take money in your belts, no gold, no silver, no copper. And for the trip, don't take a pack, an extra shirt, shoes, or a walking stick. A worker should be given what he needs. Now we're going to take the time to go on a few detours. In Matthew chapter 10, because there's a few things that we need that need some special attention. This chapter opens with Matthew explaining that as of that moment, Yeshua had formed a core group of 12 disciples, and that he gave them special authority to do several things that Yeshua himself did. Things we call miracles. They could exercise demons, they could heal infirmities. From there Matthew goes on to specifically name the 12 disciples. Now, it might surprise you to know that of all the Gospel writers, only Matthew gives this group the title of the 12 disciples. Why 12? Why not some other number? We don't have to guess. Clearly it was meant to be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel that included the so-called 10 Lost Tribes. A few chapters later in the book of Matthew, this is highlighted in Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28. Kepha replied, Look, we have left everything and followed you, so what will we have? And Yeshua said to them, Yes! I tell you that in the regenerated world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on 12 thrones, and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It's important to notice that there were some privileges, there was some special authority bestowed only upon the 12 but not upon ALL followers of Christ. It is also important to understand that Israel, only Israel, was currently on Yeshua's and the disciples' radar. The Gentile world played no role as participants or disciples for now. That would come later. Why disciple, Why 12 disciples for 12 tribes if 10 of them were lost? Because in Yeshua's day, these ten tribes weren't quite as lost as the church has historically seen them, and their existence wasn't at all questioned. It is well known in Christ's day that identifiable remnants of some of those ten tribes lived in Samaria and Perea and a few other areas near the Sea of Galilee. It was also known that still others lived in faraway lands, usually described as multitudes beyond the Euphrates, in much larger numbers. So the point of having exactly 12 disciples had more to do with events of the end times than anything else. Because within Judaism and within the Bible we find that it is prophesied that the ten tribes will return to the Holy Land and be reunited with their two brother tribes of Judah and Benjamin, thereby reconstituting the twelve tribes of Israel. Thus those twelve disciples, as well as most Jews in the Holy Land it seems, believed that this glorious event, this reunion, was on the cusp of happening. Knowing this is critical to properly understanding the New Testament. These disciples of Christ and the first couple generations of Jewish believers were certain they were living in the latter days, so they felt that every biblical prophecy Concerning the end times was something they were already experiencing or they were about to. There was no thought that what their master was teaching them was about some distant future for another people. Two famous passages in the book of Ezekiel that speak of the incredible. Reconstitution of all 12 tribes of Israel is something all believers need to be familiar with. They come from Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. We're going to take just a few minutes to read just a few verses in them. So I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, just a few verses and 36 we're going to read verses 22 to 27. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 690. See, we're finally off of 1 2 3 4. 690, and we're going to read verses 22 to 27. Therefore tell the house of Israel that Adonai Elohim says this. I am NOT going to do this for your sake, House of Israel, but for the sake of my Holy Name, which you have been profaning among the nations where you went. I will set apart my great Name to be regarded as holy, since it has been profaned in the nations. You profaned it among them. The nations will know that I am Adonai, says Adonai Elohim, when before their eyes I am set apart through you. To be regarded as holy. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you from all the countries, return you to your own soil. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit inside you. I will take that stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit inside you and cause you to live by my laws, respect my rulings, and to obey them. Now move over just a little bit to chapter 37, verse 15. Chapter 37, verse 15. It's just on the bottom of page 691. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being. Take one stick and write on it for Judah Judah, and those joined with him from among the people of Israel. Next, take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel who are joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. When your people ask you, what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so that they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. Then say to them what Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be Two nations, and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. In Ezekiel chapter 36, where this passage begins by saying, Tell the house of Israel, this is referring to the ten tribes, this is because after Israel split, into two kingdoms some years after Solomon's death. One kingdom was called Israel, the other kingdom was called Judah. But Biblically each kingdom was also called a house. So the two houses of Israel, one consisting of ten tribes, one consisting of two tribes, together make up the whole house of Israel. So our passage is aimed at the legendary ten lost tribes which God says through Ezekiel will return. We learn of their actual reunification with Judah and Benjamin in Ezekiel 37. These passages in Ezekiel 37 explain why in Yeshua's eyes there needed to be 12 disciples. No more, no less. It was seen by Him as most necessary for preparation for the end times, which is still ahead of us. Now, how far ahead of us, I'm not certain, but recent events make me think sooner than later. The Bible gives us three main signals for the entry of mankind into the second and the final latter days. First, the rebirth of Israel as a nation second, the recapture of Jerusalem by the Jews and put under Jewish control, and third, the return of the Ten Lost Tribes. The first of these three prophesied events happened in 1948, the second in 1967, the third is underway. Thousands of people from far-flung places who identify themselves with one or the other of the Ten Tribes have been immigrating to Israel since around 2005. I have personally witnessed the arrival of two batches of them. They have been vetted both by designated rabbinical scholars and government officials. They really are of the 10 Lost Tribes. In fact, (laughs) this this return started much earlier because one of the largest groups To immigrate to Israel is the Ethiopian Jews who are known by the nickname of the Black Jews of Ethiopia. However, that name obscures one very important fact. They are of the tribe of Dan, not of Judah or Benjamin, the tribe of Dan. They are one of the Ten Lost Tribes and they have returned. Now, I want to change direction now. to the authority or power that the 12 disciples received from Yeshua in order for them to, to do what we term as miracles, which even includes, if you noticed, raising the dead. He gave them that power. The Bible's full of miracles, and they are called such. But I'm not sure they are discussed all that much in modern times. Miracles are defined in the dictionary As a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. In other words, it's something that we believe or science has told us cannot possibly happen, but it does. Therefore, something outside of the natural realm and what science can explain. Occurs. Now, this is where it's going to get interesting today. Because our rational senses tell us that our world, including the universe, simply are not constructed in a way to even allow for these events, then most secular folks and many within modern Christianity have become doubtful that miracles actually occurred in the Bible. Or begrudgingly, they say that perhaps miracles once happened, but they no longer do. Rather because of the teaching of the sciences and our skepticism, the so-called miracles both in life today and in Scripture are strictly, strictly a natural phenomenon that the ancients didn't understand, so out of superstition that it could explain them only as miracles, caused by one God or another. The parting of the Red Sea, the turning of water to wine, even Yeshua's resurrection and this, of course this long list of healings that He did while on earth are today questioned within wide swaths of the church body. Even those who do believe in actual miracles then and now have a tendency to call these events supernatural meaning something well outside the bounds of what can normally happen. Put another way, the supernatural is something that happens outside of the ability of the makeup of the universe to accommodate. But if we don't believe there is something outside of the universe to cause these strange happenings, then they are simply natural events that are misinterpreted by those who experienced it and can be explained in scientific or medical terms. I think this is a good spot to pause and discuss the Phenomena of Miracles, because otherwise we are jumping right over what has been the main substance of Christ's work on Earth at this point in His life. Now, to try to create a workable context for thinking about it, I need you to put down your Bibles, put on your scholar's cap, and focus on what I am going to tell you. Now I am going to begin this somewhat uncomfortable detour by making this claim. Miracles need not be looked at as supernatural per se, but rather in a sense as something quite natural within the realm of what is possible for God. And perhaps even within the way He created the universe to operate. A universe that we know far less about than we have been led to believe. If you watch those interesting science shows on TV, or even attended classes in physics. The impression is given that scientists now have a pretty good handle on how the cosmos and even life was created and operates, however, that is simply chutzpah. In point of fact, each passing day is casting doubt on, if not in some cases destroying, old assumptions that have been the basis for classic physics, astrophysics, particle physics for decades. Numerous experiences, ex- experiments conducted by the best science minds, the biggest consortiums on Earth are now ready to throw into the trash bin large parts of the current understanding of how the material that makes up the universe operates. On the one hand, that is really exciting news on the other, these scientists don't know what to replace it with. As of now, it's only perplexion and mystery because of the rise of the field of quantum mechanics and what it seems to be revealing. You know, science, like religion, constantly strives to find firm, unequivocal answers to the really big questions. And a whole host of smaller ones. Uncertainty is uncomfortable. I'm going to try to make these findings the least sciencey I think that's a word that I can. And then I think you're going to understand where I'm going with it and how it pertains to our faith. Quantum physics operates on a theoretical level because they are bumping into things that don't seem to behave as rationality and logic and scientific observation have previously dictated. For instance, quantum physics doesn't deal with what an object actually is, rather it deals with what the probabilities of what something could be. Let your mind wrap around that for a second. They call this theoretical substance that could become any number of things a probability wave. And the more they delve into this strange something that science has almost feared might prove to be true, because it potentially upends and upsets so much that was formerly thought to have been known and settled, is that as irrational as it seems to us, time does not seem to actually exist as a real entity or even as a dimension, and time has always played an important role in physics. Enormously expensive and elaborate experiments in quantum mechanics are proving this startling development to be true. But even more, these experiments also seem to be proving that space as we think of it doesn't actually exist either. Therefore the basic idea of location, that is, our everyday understanding of where, of things being located in a particular place, where that plant is, where that camera is, where you sit, you all sit in a location. And then the basic concept of distance the simple idea of how far apart things are, are in doubt. Rather these things that seem so real and tangible and logical to us may actually be mostly or entirely constructs of our minds. Not in the sense of an imagination, but rather in the sense that time and space are constructs of an observer what's an observer it's a person watching something happen you're observing me right now in the case of science it's the person who runs the experiment and then takes careful notice of what happens so how weird is the concept That experiment after experiment after experiment is revealing that objects may only exist in reality in a specific form, in a specific place, specific location, based on the requirement that an observer has to be there to detect it. Otherwise, the objects do not come into existence at all. But they merely remain as a probability wave. And no, this is not the old philosophical challenge that many of us face in our university philosophy class. That if I place a large tablecloth over a table, big enough that I can't see the table anymore, can I prove with certainty that the table's still there? My answer to that to my teacher always was Of course I can, because I Have a pretty simple experiment to prove it. I walk over to the cloth and pick up a corner and look at that, look at it, look underneath it. There it is. And every single time I do, I, as an observer, see that the table's still there. It's a very simple proof. But what quantum physics is now revealing is that nothing exists without someone being present to observe it. And that's because particles of matter and waves of energy that form everything in the universe forms you, doesn't seem to settle down into a particular state until they are actually observed by a sentient conscious being. But it gets even stranger. Even stranger and more mind-bending then this is something called Particle Entanglement. Now This theory is nothing new. It dates back to Einstein in 1935. But with our recent technological advances, the theory has been put to the test and very nearly something called fact has emerged. The basic of the theory is this, one particle can somehow know what another particle that is essentially its twin, which is completely separated from it, is doing and it will react accordingly. Even more, the distance they are apart is irrelevant. They could be as close as a micron or as far apart as from one end of our galaxy to the other and the results the same. I want to see if I can explain. Identical particles, twins, if you would, can become entangled either in their interaction or in proximity. The orbits of their electrons and protons can even overlap. And through advanced detection equipment, entangled particles like photons, photons are what light's made out of, can become made to become disentangled in a laboratory, separated, like Siamese twins, Okay, and what is being discovered is that the instant we observe the spin characteristics of one of the disentangled particles, its twin instantly spins in the opposite direction. I want to emphasize, I am only talking about watching, I am only talking about observing These particles, not doing anything to affect their movement. Scientists all over the world have performed this experiment, putting the particle twins at greater and greater and greater distances from each other, and the outcome does not change. But what gets really weird is that when I say one particle instantly affects the other, I mean instantly. We have devices now, did you know, that can measure time to within a few parts of a billionth of a second. A billionth of a second. And when they use these amazing instruments to try to determine how long does it take from the instant we observe the spin of the one particle before the other particle reacts And assumes an equal and opposite spin to its twin, the time is zero. And the distance between the particles doesn't matter at all. How can this be? See, the thing is, this experiment has been done countless times by the physics community's best minds in various parts of the world, under differing circumstances, using the most costly equipment and technology, it achieves the same result every single time. Okay, I'm sure some heads are spinning as fast as those crazy particles. I want to approach our issue of what we actually know about the substance and operation of what is typically dubbed the natural world, meaning all the stuff the universe is made out of, versus what's turning out to be true. And we're only finding this out within the last few years. By means of using a chart that Dr. Robert Lanza, a brilliant scientist of the highest degree, known and respected by some of the most renowned and honored scientists of our time, he, that he's contrived this chart to drive home an important point to let us know the truth about just how weak and feeble our knowledge of God's creation actually is. He entitles his chart, Science's Answers to Basic Questions. That is, as of now, in the early 2000s AD, this is an accurate summation of what science actually knows in their search to answer the most fundamental questions about the natural world of the universe and how it operates. First, how did the Big Bang creation, how did it happen? Answer unknown. Two, what exactly was the Big Bang and what existed before it? Answer unknown. What's the nature of dark energy, the most dominant source of energy in the whole of the universe? Answer unknown. What's the nature of dark matter, the second most prevalent substance in the whole of the universe? Answer unknown. How did life? Arise from dead matter and formless energy? Answer unknown. How did consciousness, awareness of self, how did this arise? Answer unknown. What's the fate of the universe? It's expanding right now. Will it keep expanding endlessly? Answer yes, it will. Eight. There are exactly four types of observable forces in the universe electromagnetic, gravity, the weaker nuclear force, and the stronger nuclear force. Why are there only four and exactly four? Answer unknown. And nine in science is life further experienced after one's body dies? Answer unknown. So here is the point of this detour In the modern 21st century science and quantum physics. Things in our universe simply do not operate the way classic science and physics once thought they did. And those making these do- new discoveries do not know how to explain what they are finding. What is normal? What is natural? Frankly, some strange new findings about the very ground we stand on are completely irrational to the scientific observer. Simply put, the scientific world can no longer speak of what is normal or natural, and as its concerns are delving into the subject of miracles. Since there is no longer a firm standard for what is natural, then there is no meaning to the term supernatural. As Ben Witherington III, who is an excellent New Testament scholar, once noted about the miracles that we read about in the Bible, there is good reason to be uncomfortable with the suggestion that when God acts or intervenes in God's own universe that it amounts to an intrusion, something that violates nature or nature's laws. He is saying that a miracle isn't something we ought to view whereby God has decided to break His own laws of nature, He has intruded into our physical world. Rather, it seems that we really don't know what the laws of God created nature actually are even though the standard group of TV scientists we regularly see on the Discovery Channel and others were pretend they do. After all, the same God that made Earth made Heaven. The same God that created the spiritual also created the physical. I have no issue at all, nor should any of us have, with calling something like Jesus healing the paralytic or revivifying that dead little girl, miracles. Of course they are. But no longer do I see miracles in terms of God intruding in order to do the impossible by canceling out the laws of nature. Rather does God employing what is possible based on the dynamics of operation of ALL the realms that He has created. It's just that it is so far over our heads to contemplate and to comprehend the realm that we live in. I mean, we can either only be in fear of what He does, or deny it as simply a, a mirage, or we can be awestruck about it and joyful. The limit to what is possible in God's created nature then is not currently known. Perhaps it will never be known to us. And yet the Bible clearly shows that in some cases this inexplicable power of that nature is accessible if God wills to grant such authority to humans even if we don't understand why or how it is possible. Perhaps, just perhaps, this is the best and the real definition of faith. We observe, we trust, and we do not demand a satisfying explanation that meets with our preconceived perceptions. We'll continue with Matthew chapter 10 next time.